welcome to Drinks at the Doll, episode 42, Origin. Listening to Drinks at the Doll, a podcast way station for Lost Girl fans. I'm your host, Stephanie. And I'm Chris. And Annie is currently missing right now as we begin the recording of this podcast, but hopefully she will join us later. Uh, so, but we will, we will try to soldier on without her, at least for the time being. Yeah, not like missing, missing. Let's clarify oh, sorry. here. She's... No, she has not been kidnapped. <laughs> she was just running late at work. So we're discussing episode 12 of season four of Lost Girl called Origin. And the drink special for this week is a drink called The Unknown Warrior because we had a lot of, as Chris can attest, a lot of prophecies this week. Yes, a lot of prophecies. Chris was nice enough to go back and write them down for me. (laughs) I was going to say, guess who was in charge of prophecies this week? (laughs) (laughs) So we had a lot of prophecies this week and, you know, this, this... figure of the warrior kept popping up in each of them. And we assumed, I think we're intended to assume that Raynor is the warrior, but there's theories going around as to who the the warrior might actually be. So the unknown warrior, it's actually kind of an exciting drink. You light it on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Also appropriate for this episode. So the unknown warrior, it's half an ounce of vodka, half an ounce of Cointreau or triple sec. And you put that in a shot glass and you light that on fire. And then you hold a sugar cube on a fork over the flame to have the sugar drip down into the drink. So, and then you, of course, extinguish the fire before you drink the drink. I cannot stress that enough. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start off. We will talk about sort of our, our first impressions, our brief reviews. I will let you go first, Chris. Well, I said it on Twitter, but I'll say it again here. I was sort of stuck between what and whoa, and then basically came to the conclusion, both. It's both. You know, I kind of liked it. I know you're about to disagree with me very strongly. I really did not like this episode (laughs) at all. I really did not like this episode. The only part of the episode I enjoyed was the Lauren's scenes. Yes. Not just the Lauren Morgan storyline, but basically if the scene had Lauren in it, with the exception of the one with her and Mosmo, I enjoyed it. But that was the only parts of the episode that I enjoyed. So it's okay that Annie's not here because you sound like Annie right now. I know. And I sound super biased. <laughs> it's not because Lauren was in the scenes. Those just happened to be the best written, best acted, best scenes of this episode. So it's not because Lauren was there necessarily. She just happened to be in the best scenes of the episode. But otherwise, really did not like this episode. I thought it was a hot mess. The dialogue was really terrible. And I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Because I know I will have more ranting later on. Stephanie is surly about this week's episode. I'm very surly. So I apologize, people who enjoyed this week's episode. I will try not to rant too much, but I really did not like it. Hello, podcasters. This is Sally. I'm S. Heaven on Twitter. I was so excited by this episode. There were lots of times that I said out loud, holy crap. Actually, what I really said was holy shit, but I don't want to make you guys play the word shit on your podcast in case you could get in trouble with the FCC. So there was just so much going on with the episode, and I think we're getting some answers and 
stuff is happening, and it's wild. I think that um, the Bo and Kenzie friendship breakup was very heartbreaking. Trick is up to something. I don't trust him. Um, I think that uh, Dyson and Tamsin were more in the background for this one, but I'm one of the people who's wondering what Dyson was whispering to Kenzie after the funeral. And the Morgan, she got outfoxed by a fox. So way to go, Lauren. I was worried about Lauren's safety, though, because satin sheets just aren't very breathable. So I'm hoping she didn't suffer any oxygen deprivation. And I was wowed to find out that Vex basically raised Massimo. I think there's a big family theme uh, on this show. And, you know, there's a lot to say about that. So let's start, first of all, with the kind of the A storyline of this episode with Bo and Rainer and Rosette running around doing whatever the hell. Whatever the hell. (laughs) (laughs) And I have more ranting already. This plot made no sense to me. (laughs) I I will grant you this. It kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. And because she literally comes out of nowhere. Yes. Here pops up Rosette and Complete she's with got helmet. a book. <laughs> yes. And cape. She's got she's got a book of prophecies which now, you know, reveals you know, Rainer has this second curse on him that we had no idea about. And, you know, we need to conveniently have Bo and Rainer do this like alliance which has the double side effect of bringing ba- about Pyropus. It's just they cram too much stuff and brought too much stuff just out of the blue in this episode, and it's just a mess. But the scene where they set up this whole plot with Bo and Rainer and Rosette in the doll, I've, I, I swear that I've watched it at least five times, and I still don't understand it. Not at all. <laughs> because they, they're talking about the fact that Rainer is cursed. Okay, fine, whatever. Out of the blue, but whatever. And Tamsin reveals, we can break the curse with Bo, with, um, with the person who cursed you, in which case is Trick. Okay, I'll buy that. Curses and blood. That's that's a common enough image and fantasy. I'll buy that. But Bo's like, oh, and then Trick's blood is my blood. And then I think Rosette says, and then that means we can break the curse. And then Bo says, and find the Pyropus. What? What? How does breaking the curse equaling finding Pyropus? But so there's that leap of logic and then it becomes we have to find pyropus in order to decurse rainer why they just established that the curse is broken with trick slash bow's blood and there's alliance there's an alliance involved so why do they have to find pyropus and then in order to find pyropus they need something that bow and rainer shared why <laughs> it was just like they had to do these things in this episode just because the plot demanded they do them, not because they actually provided any reasoning behind these actions. Fair enough. See, I have a tendency to just kind of <laughs> apparently not not question some of these things so much. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> apparently. But I mean, I guess they needed the braid that they ended up getting for the hand fasting. But I wish that they had taken a more logical route to get there. Because the whole big crux of that scene was Rainer's going to die unless there's an alliance between Bo and Rainer. So shouldn't the leading question have been, how do we form an alliance? Not, how do we find Pyropus? Yes. 
Yes. I, I was kind of Thank wondering you. that too. It's like, okay, but aren't they sort of technically allied already? Like what's... <laughs> right. And Rosette seemed to know about this idea of an alliance. So why couldn't she have known, oh, an alliance means you have to get married. And in order to get or handfasted, and in order to get handfasted, you know, we need this thing or whatever. But it was just like the way that they got the plot going just really didn't make any sense to me. So that was my big thing. Plot made no sense. I didn't understand why they were having to do the things that they were doing, besides the fact that the script said that they had to do them. Of course, I guess the fact that the big reveal at the end is that Rosette's playing them anyway. Mm-hmm. And because she seems to be the one guiding their actions through the entire episode anyway. So basically, I'm I'm willing to sort of go with it because, of course, the reveal at the end is that she was leading them to this course of action. Who knows how much of this was actually what they thought it was just because she was manipulating things, if that makes sense. That's fair. But it's not her idea to, oh, the the solution is we find Pyropus. It's Bo who brings that up. So it would make more sense to me if it had been clearer in that scene that it was really Rosette guiding them in that direction, but it just wasn't. Okay. So yes, didn't like that plot. Didn't make any sense to me. It ended up with the hand fasting, of course, which... I kind of had was wishing that at some point Bo and Dyson's hand fasting from Lovers Apart had come into play somehow. Mm-hmm. I'm still kind of not convinced that it won't. I'm hoping. And I mean, just the fact that the one at the beginning in, in 403 was specifically a hand fasting too. I mean, that mm-hmm. has to come into play, right? It has to. I I hope so. I hope so, because I was hope what I was hoping would happen is they went to go get handfasted, and then sort of it was a dud because Bo was already handfasted to Dyson, right? And so she couldn't align herself with Rainer in that way. But I'm still ha- hoping that maybe that will come back into play somehow. Mm-hmm. So in regards to the mythology that they brought in for this plot, so we had the the high priestess of the the women of the horse. Her she introduces herself as Epona, and I, again with the show, probably they're not suggesting she is necessarily the Epona. Maybe they are, but that is a a, a figure from Gallo Roman mythology, and she is a, a goddess of horses. She protects horses, donkeys, and mules. And there is some suggestion that she might have been a leader of souls in the in the afterlife. So, given that they have associated Pyropus with the underworld, and he is, seems to be a horse, or at least have a horse form, it kind of makes sense that they would insert Epona into this world of of Pyropuses. So Epona, as well as providing that you know very helpful and kind of comical last ga- last gasp of useful information about the hand fasting, she revealed some stuff about Bo and her relationship to Pyropus, of which she says that Bo is Pyropus's daughter. We were all kind of expecting that. She also reveals that Bo's blood can hurt Pyropus, which is why he maybe has been putting this big plot in place in order to control her, maybe. She's kind of a loose cannon for him because she is so dangerous toward him. So we got some new information there. And then I thought the the end of this of the episode where Rosette, you know, 
is drawn into the fire and both kind of the glowy handprints appear on both Bo and Rainer suggests that maybe they've both been being manipulated by Pyropus in some way. Hmm. Yeah, that was my I was trying to figure out what that meant. Okay, so I wrote down what um, Epona says. Okay. If it comes, you will bring death and destruction. And then I think that's when Bo says, you know, if what comes, because, of course, Bo has no context for this conversation. Epona continues. Do not play games, betrayer of all. You're interfering with destiny. And so I thought that was interesting, you know, the betrayer of all. Mm-hmm. Because what does that mean? Well, that might tie into some of the things that were being said about Rainer in the history books. Because isn't there a line in there about how, he, I think it says Rainer specifically, but maybe it just says somebody will betray the Fae. Right, that was in the part about Rainer, but I think she was talking to Bo specifically. Well, maybe she wasn't, though. They were, they were both standing there. So but it was my impression that Bo and Rainer weren't... They were all going along to, to you know, get undo the curse, the second curse upon Rainer, but I seem to be unaware... Stupid second curse. Yes, yeah, Stephanie is rolling her eyes, as am I mentally. But, but seem to be unaware of the true intentions or evil that Pyrrhus will unleash upon the world until... He seems to come out at the end, and I'm like, maybe that's what. But they weren't exactly. But they weren't yeah. unaware. They were told that know, in the beginning. And then I'm like, wait, now you're saying what have we done? And I'm like, it's like, why do it if it's going to doom the world? And that's what uh, that's what Apollo was saying, you know, the betrayer of all. And I would think that's because it's going to destroy the entire world yet again. Every season seems to end with something that's going to destroy the entire world or fatem. Um, I'm sitting here going, so why are you going ahead? Why are they going ahead with this crusade to undo the curse? Uh, is she unaware of the law? And they keep saying, oh, it's for the greater good in a sense. But are they aware that this is going to destroy the world? I mean, they've always been aware that this wanderer slash Bo's father could be with the dark and is a bad guy. Do you really think... Yes, but now we know that the Wanderer and Bo's father are different yeah. characters. But still, it's like, do you really think that this papyrus guy is going to be a good thing? <laughs> Pyrrhus. Just let just let her call her Papyrus. I'm fine with it. Okay, so <laughs> we really think that papaya horse is going to be a good thing. Sorry, I was eating a, I was eating I like a lot it. of tropical fruit over the weekend. Kate says papaya is coming. Episode thirteen. Lauren invents a huge blender. <laughs> All the problems will be solved. Cheers, Kate. That was a good one. <laughs> This was another part of the writing that really bugged me, along with the sudden second curse yeah. thing, was that th- they set up that the, you know, the way to uncurse Rainer was for them to get handfasted or ally themselves. And, but doing so would also release Pyrrhus. Did I say it right? Yes. Thank you. I'm going with Papyrus Horse. <laughs> <Yes>. Okay. <laughs> I will totally hashtag that. But given given the doom and gloom language that Epona was using in regards to this horsey guy, it's it, it I I don't think there was enough weight 
that was in Bo's decision about whether she would go through with the hand fasting or not. To me, I think that should have given her pause and think, okay, yes, I want to save Rainer. That is Bo's instinct as a person. She will save people she can when she can. But there was like no deliberation about the facts. So it was just a decision kind of thrown in there, but then it didn't actually affect anything. Well, but I mean, again, it's so in character for Bo to just be like, well, I can save this person's life. Of course, I'm going to do that. So, But when she knew it could have been at the risk of the entire world, she's going to ignore that? That well, bugged me. But I, think, I think a lot of it is just that, you know, she doesn't know what's going to happen. Yes, there's indication that it's something bad, but here, uh, Dawson says, I don't think Bo is convinced Pyrrhus is evil, given that she thinks Rainer is a good guy, and the books say he's evil too, which I think is a good point sure. that there's been this sort of reinforcing of this idea all season that um like trick it turns out kind of almost you know destroyed everything no <laughs> or you know was basically a maniacal tyrant, and you know this whole thing of you know, what's in the books isn't necessarily actually what happened. Rainer essentially is the one who talks Bo out of thinking Pyrrhus is a threat because they go back to their to the clubhouse after talking to Epona and he's saying, well, look how the history books painted me. I'm not this person, though I'm not entirely convinced he's not that person. Right. And then, but this is completely him convincing Bo that Pyrrhus is a good guy seems completely contrary to his attitude toward Pyrrhus at the beginning of the episode, where Rainer says, "You know, we're going to get back at this guy who's been manip- manipulating me," which which also bugged me because we have had no evidence that Rainer thought he was being manipulated. Where the hell did that line come from? Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so so back to this whole decision about whether to do the hand fasting with Rainer, even though it releases papaya horse. It just was not good writing. Even it, you can try to explain away why it was not a tough decision for Bo, et cetera, et cetera. To write it as a decision, really, the writers should make the decision actually have some weight to it. Otherwise, don't write it in as a decision. Just have it be an unknown consequence of the binding. You know, have Rosette keep that aspect hidden from them the entire episode, and then evil cackle, ha ha ha, you also did this. But because they wrote it in as a decision, it should have had some weight to it, and it just didn't. So that's my rant about the decision. I I will grant you, there's a lot of contrived stuff going on. Yes. Meanwhile, this will be known as the episode where Stephanie sighs a lot. (laughs) You know, this was an episode where there are a lot of clues and finding papaya horse prophecy of Bo as the queen, not just the queen, but the one. But, again, the stakes didn't feel real to me uh, in general as this episode with, you know, the clues and finding the horse and everything because it just, the way it was written, I didn't care about it as much. And Rainer and Bo suddenly making a decision with him that's so important to bind with him to save his life for a character that's been there for, like, four episodes when the yeah, not, not even. even four episodes. This this was his third. Yeah, he was only in the last little bit of four or nine. We have no relationship yeah. with this character and as the audience. We have no relationship with this character as an audience, but he's having a huge effect with releasing this great evil based on this decision that seems to happen very quickly at the end of this episode when 
the relationships that have been there for four years are in shambles and just keep getting, you know, and every time they start to try and talk, shamblier, keep getting even more and more messier. That's what I'm caring about right now. And it's just not getting addressed as much. I mean, it's, but it is the weight of, you know, it's what Spo's saying. It's the greater good versus her family. She, she does mention family several times in this episode, but it's, it was so hard for me to watch. And as I was driving home, I was preparing my little ranty thing going, but, 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 you know, I, I don't care about the stakes as much with Papaya Horse. I just don't, quite frankly. I know it's going to build up to a big end, but, just the way it was written, I just I don't ha- I don't feel the weight either of that decision. I I think Annie makes a really good point, and that was another issue that I had with this with this episode is that Bo and a lot of the characters they were just little plot puppets. Mm-hmm. You know, they were running around yeah. and doing things because the plot said they were supposed to be. We didn't understand their motivations. We didn't really have any good character interactions for most of them, with the exception of Lauren. I guess Bo and Lauren had a good scene, but you know, for most of the scenes, it was just, it was just character. They were just doing things to do things, but they weren't. It's like, it's good we knew these characters because otherwise, you know, we would have no idea who these people were. They just weren't acting as characters. They were just acting as devices in a larger plot. I I do think that. Lost Girl especially is one of those shows that it's always much better when it's character focused mm-hmm. than when it's like really plot focused. Mm-hmm. Not that I dislike having actual plot happen, but yeah, I I agree that it was it was overly focused on the plot versus character. But to to just touch on the mythology behind I'm going to say it correctly this time, Pyrrhus again. We mentioned when we talked about End of a Line that I tried to do some research into Pyrrhus and had a lot of difficulty finding any information. There was like maybe one site on the internet. And my friend Elizabeth, who has access to a bunch of mythological databases through her job, she did some searching and she said she couldn't find evidence of Pyrrhus as a mythological creature. That doesn't mean that it's it isn't, but she couldn't find any sort of definitive mention of Pyrrhus in these myriad databases. There are definitely horses associated with Hades slash Pluto slash the god of the underworld, but they have names. Each of the horses has names. They are not called generally Pyrrhuses, as the internet entry suggests. So it's quite possible that the writers are creating this creature more or less whole cloth. And that's fine. You know, that's great. I think it's fantastic to be creative. But I think we tend to go looking for where they're basing things in mythology. And it's looking like maybe it's not there in this case. Elizabeth wants you to know that hashtag papaya horse is not a real thing in the ancient world. (laughs) It just means... It just means fire horse, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure she is actually talking about Pyrrhus and not papaya horse. Let's switch it over to Chris and let's talk about all of the prophecies that were revealed in this episode. The super specific prophecies. The first prophecy that we get is the one read by Tamsin from the book that Rosette has. So mm-hmm. the first bit she reads is he shall rise and seek her out the succubus, the one. And then later... <laughs> Uh, it's if the wanderer is rescued and the first curse should fall, 
he shall be cursed again to suffer and perish within seven days of being on this earth. Which we talked about in regards to this random second curse that popped up. Then Lauren's book that she finds in the Dark Archives, the Dark Archives, Behold the Demon Beast, Evil Pure, Fang Teeth, Horned, Him They Call Rainer, Thousand Years Shall Be Ended, He Shall Be Unbound, To Wreak Torment Beyond Comparison and Betray the Fae. Lauren's book seems to be the one really talking about Rainer as this ugly beast monster. Since Groundhog Fay, when Tamsin talked about the person hiring her being, you know, ugly and just you could tell he was pure evil, you know, right, we were very surprised and we got Rainer and he's this handsome god boy. And so there's always been, I think, a question in the back of our minds of was there another person who hired Tamsin or perhaps does Rainer maybe have two visages because he was gone last episode in end of the line Bo says he went to go visit the battlefield to pay respect but is it possible that he turned ugly and he had to get away from Bo while he was in his ugly monster phase and he comes back when he's pretty again solution a as to who hired tamsin maybe it was purpose yeah, that's what i'm thinking solution b rainer is actually this ugly beast that the history books portray him as but he perhaps can shift into a, a, you know, a handsome man or he goes through sort of cycles where he looks ugly versus he looks pretty. The Rizzoli and Isles podcast people just sent us mm-hmm. a tweet. The pick in the book of the Wanderer looks just like Rainer, but evil. Right. Mm. It does. But, you know, there is also the consideration that, as Trick says in the previous episode, history is written by the victors. So it is possible that, as Rainer suggests, the history books have painted him as, as ugly. But I frankly don't trust anything that guy says. <laughs> no, so, me neither. So I'm more, I'm more inclined to believe that perhaps he has this second face, this second ugly, evil half to him that he's keeping I hidden from I just keep thinking Bo. that, yeah, his true nature will be revealed uh, in this finale. Moving on to the piece that Lauren reads when she's in Bo's bedroom. The warrior shall escape his curse. The Valkyrie shall be reborn. The blood of Zamorin shall be spilled. The women of the horse shall rise. Between the warrior and the queen, one of the two shall die. Because I know that there's been some conversation on Tumblr, on Twitter, about whether the warrior is necessarily Rainer, like we are assuming that it is. But I feel like in that verse, it's pretty clear that Rainer is the warrior due to that bit about escaping the curse. Would you say right. that's fair? Well, that's what thought. I was thinking, too, because I, I noticed that, too, because some I, I've seen some people speculating about Kenzie possibly being the warrior. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, based on that passage, it can't be. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's based on the part that Kenzie reads that they're generally thinking right. that, where it's a warrior to be her guide. Yeah, so let's read that part next. Kenzie's part, one with eyes both brown and blue... One who shifts, a Valkyrie too. One with blood that rules the world. One who sings, his life unfurled. A warrior to be her guide. A healer always by her side. So that one, it's less clear. Do you remember what book that's in? As I recall, it's Lauren's book because it's it's okay. at the it's at the clubhouse, and I think that's mm-hmm. the last place we see that book. And I think it's the bigger book. So, right. So yeah. Okay. So they're from the same book because I was. Wondering about that too earlier. Right. So it does seem unlikely that Kemsey would be the warrior, given 
the passage that Lauren reads and the passage that Kinsey reads comes from the same book. Here, here's something I noticed. It never specifically says who this is about. Yes, it starts off yes. with one with eyes both brown and blue, but then it says one who shifts, a Valkyrie too, one with blood. I mean, it's just, it's one with, one with, one with. What is this list up for? Then the last two things are a warrior to be her guide, a healer always by her side. So, because it's a list of a bunch of people, and then people referring to somebody else, somebody specific who is female. <laughs> Yes, the implication is that it's all about Bo, but it starts off one with, one with, one with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's yep. ambiguous. The theory that I've sort of seen online in regards to that particular prophecy is that list of people who are accompanying this female person might actually be referring to Kenzie as that female mm. person. Uh, and maybe she's just not seeing herself as being written into the prophecy in some way. But yeah, it's a very vague section. I've also got the Zamora family code. That's what I was going to talk about next, okay. so go for it. Complexity, courage, strength, and beauty, mindful always of your duty. To ties of blood and those we love, with gentle hands, wings of a dove, ready thyself, on guard, be keen, to reunite with me, the queen. So that little crest led to that terrible conversation between <laughs> Bo, Dyson, and Tamsin about queen bees, literal queen bees, so apparently Bo is transforming into not a bee. Not their queen, the queen, not the queen, <laughs> the one. <laughs> well, and they had the dramatic music cue as if that conversation was supposed to have explained something when it nothing. explained nothing. <laughs> But Chris did have a theory as to what Dyson's reference to the one yes, might please. mean. Okay, so at the end of the episode, we get reference again to Hell, 1L, which, what does that make everybody think of? The Hell Shoes. So I'm thinking that maybe, because the whole thing about the Hell Score was that they had to be worn by the one person. So I'm thinking... Maybe that's what's happening here, is that Bo is the one worthy of the health score. Given they already had assumed that, I guess that's not that much of a reveal, but hopefully maybe that's what Dyson is talking about, just to make some sense out of that conversation, because otherwise... Bo's going to turn into a bee and wear a pair of ugly-ass burlap shoes to save the world against a papaya horse. Yes! <laughs> Elizabeth also says, bees are also symbols of resurrection, by the way. Hashtag, but please keep giggling. <laughs> Bo, we've seen essentially resurrect people before, so she technically has the ability. Uh, something that I really thought that I was really disappointed in in regards to this episode, I know you're thinking something else, Stephanie, but yes, was the fact that we didn't have more Kenzie in this episode. Mm -hmm. After last episode, I really wanted more Kenzie. I wanted more uh, of a transition or a little bit of... Because a lot of people wonder, well, you know, what would have been like when Dyson found out or, you know, if Lauren ever found out or, you know, when they found out that Hale was dead or how Kenzie coped in those few days or whatever. You know, I would have liked to have seen, um, even though I know it's a matter of getting the actors back, I would have liked to have seen Hale's family at the uh, memorial. Yeah, me too. D-Man's uh, eulogy was beautiful and very, very appropriate. And um, 
I loved how it started out with, you know, they always said they'd be talking soon because maybe they took their long lives for granted, but they had just that close of a friendship. And I loved how it said how he, how he loved, um, I can't remember how he referred to Kenzie specifically, but, you know, when the camera just showed Kenzie and uh, she's so broken hearted and, Oh, that was that was really tough. I would have liked to have seen Bo with Kenzie more in this episode. I was frustrated because, again, the plot took Bo away from everybody. I think that needed her in this episode, and I could see why Kenzie was so frustrated. Yeah, I'm still desperately hoping, and I think it is. It almost has to just be a plot point that this is that this is gone this way. I mean. Because why else would they so deliberately separate Bo and Kenzie? I mean, it has to, it has to play out. I hope. Gosh, I hope. I know. So I really didn't care for how the Kenzie plot played out. It just felt really contrived. I didn't buy that Kenzie didn't attack Massimo twice. And that, you know, this really contrived way they had to have all of her friends betray her in some way with no really clear reasons. If we had gotten a hint as to why Dyson spared Massimo, that would have made it better. But otherwise, it just seems like Dyson lets down Kenzie just for the sake of the plot, because Kenzie needed to feel abandoned by all of her friends. What did what did you think of the reveal that Fex was Massimo's foster parent, Chris? I, I did think it was, it was one of those things, it did kind of come out of nowhere. Because, I mean, I think... The thing is, we all kind of saw it coming that the Morrigan was his mother. Right. That had been sort of hinted around enough that that wasn't really a surprise. But I I don't know. I mean, I on the one hand, well, that explains why Massimo's so messed up. <laughs> True. Vex for a foster father and Ebony for a mom. Mm. But yeah, Vex as introduced, like that just doesn't even kind of makes sense that he had raised a human child at all. Like, that just... It kind of doesn't track, but... But it's all due to a blood oath, which they're pretty... They pretty much stick to, the Fae. But he was tender toward Massimo. He had tender feelings toward him. Which was weird to right. see. And I, I think it is one of those things... I think... I mean, since we've known Vex, yes, I can kind of see it that way. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm saying in 108, when we're introduced to Vex, that Vex, it kind of, I'm having cognitive dissonance over it. And no, I think I that's agree. what Kenzie's referring to when she says, I want, I need the real Vex, is from 108. I, I felt really kind of sorry for Vex in that moment, that I feel like he's maybe trying to be a bit of a better guy. And even Kenzie, who's kind of his friend, is trying to get him to be a killer. Right, and calling that the real Vex. Yeah. But as far as Vex and Massimo goes, I don't mind that plot point in and of itself, because I I think it's kind of interesting. It's an interesting piece of Vex's character. It kind of makes sense, given what we found out about his relationship with his father in the previous episode. But it just came out of nowhere, and it was there just to create the plot twist of Vex turning on Kenzie. So I didn't like it the way that it was just kind of thrown in there, thrown in there just to be a plot twist, to be a plot twist. 
so we have we have Dyson letting Kenzie down by sparing Mosmo. We have Vex letting Ken- Kenzie down by sparing Mosmo. We have, and then there's the stuff between Bo and Kenzie. And I thought Kenzie's reaction to when Rosette showed up at the beginning of the episode was actually really perfect. It's like, oh, of course, I really need Bo, and here comes this thing that's going to distract her. You know, but it's it was a really heartbreaking kind of moment. But then you think, oh, Bo's going to come back. She's going to do what she should do as a friend when she sort of tells Rosette off at the doll saying, you know, my family needs me right now. But then, but then Massimo brings up Rainer and suddenly Bo's okay with sort of letting him go for the time being because of her mushy feels about Rainer. She better be under a spell, darn it. This is getting really hard to... Excuse Bo's behavior toward Kenzie in this episode. Yeah, that really, really yep. bothered me that the whole episode turned on that moment because of Bo's feelings towards Rainer. Oh no, we must rescue him. Yeah, that really bothered me. So, how about you, Chris? You are, I mean, I love Bo too, but you are, you are sort of the ultimate Bo lover <laughs> amongst um, the three of us. I was going to say, on this show, I am. How are you feeling about Bo's actions in this episode toward Kenzie? Well, I mean, obviously, it's it's not good, you know? And I think, as I keep talking about, I, I think this season's sort of been going this way, you know what I mean? Like, Bo is distinctly not acting like herself. And really, this started in season three, where there's this sort of... There, there's been a widening rift between her and what we like to affectionately call her humans. Her relationships with Kenzie and Lauren have been sort of getting more distant for various reasons. And and I guess my issue with it is it it's not entirely Bo's fault, <laughs> at least as all this started. But yeah, Bo's certainly not helping the situation any. I, I think what it's hinging on now is whether we're going to find out that there's some reasonable, logical cause of all of this or not. Right, because I think both you and I thought that there was pretty strong hints in previous episodes that that Rainer, or at least while she was with Rainer, Rainer had put a spell on Bo, and that was why she was behaving so out of character end of episode 409 and and since then. But this episode really challenged me in regards to that viewpoint because she seems to be, especially with the end of the episode where she tells Rainer, oh, this this union isn't about, or this hand fasting isn't about love. And Rainer says, oh, but I love you. And and we see Bo kind of have a a frank talk with, with Lauren where she does seem to still have feelings toward Lauren, it's it's less sort of, I can't, in this episode, I have a harder time saying, oh, those definitely under a spell. Yes, definitely. Right. Well, maybe there's been something where, like, the whammy is wearing off or something. I don't know. It's just, or it's, it's just disconcerting to see, you know, at the beginning of Waves when everybody's like, oh, she must be under a spell, when you hear all the voiceovers and everything, uh, everybody is trying to figure out why, um, you know, what's happened to her. And then um, at the beginning of end of a line, when Bo says to Kenzie, no, I'm not under a spell. And then now... But why would you know if you were? Yeah, I know. But still, again, it just keeps kind of... Bo herself keeps kind of, through her actions and through what she's saying, 
the whole theory that she's not under a spell. And now, through the way she treats Kenzie and Lauren in this episode, really is kind of, to me anyway, um, disproving that theory, which I would love to still be true, that she is under a spell. But that's what makes this part so hard to watch when she um, pushes Kenzie away and then, you know, pushes Lauren away and doubts her research and everything. And despite Lauren saying, I do everything for you, so, uh, you know, I, I hope the spell thing is still there. That's a good theory, but I just, Bo has, you know, I hope she explains her actions or something. All this stuff's going to go down next next week, and it's just... I hope it's adequate enough to explain all the... what the heck's been going on all season, or half the season with Bo, but I don't know. Until proven otherwise, my headcanon is going to be that Bo was under the whammy, but perhaps some of the stuff that's been going on recently is wearing down the whammy, and that's how I will explain this to myself, until proven otherwise. (laughs) So, of course, the big moment between Bo and Kenzie in this episode is where Kenzie has read the prophecy books and doesn't see herself in there, and then she asks Bo to unclaim her. And I thought Ksenia Sonolo and Anna Silk were very good in that scene. That was one of my favorite scenes of the episode. And But I'm kind of curious by Kenzie's reaction to when Bo does unclaim her, do you think she really wanted Bo to do that, or did Bo fail kind of like a friendship test? I think in the heat of the moment, she wanted her to do that. I, I think it is one of those things where maybe she thought she wanted it, at least at first. And I mean, of course, Bo's going to resist that. I mean, of course she is. And even though Kenzie says that it's selfish, I, I really don't think it is strictly. I mean, yes, Bo doesn't want to lose Kenzie, but Bo also doesn't want anything to happen to Kenzie. Right. And I think the fact that Kenzie kept pushing is why Bo finally relents, because I I think Bo just feels so guilty at this point mm-hmm. that she feels like she can't deny Kenzie what Kenzie clearly says she wants. And yeah, I think it might have been, to some extent, a bit of the the friendship test, as you say, on Kenzie's part, or at least it probably was in some part of her mind. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think she, it just seems, yeah, her reaction seems like she really didn't expect Bo to actually say it. But it's one of those things, right. I mean, from Bo's perspective, what else can Bo do? You know what I mean? I feel like for Bo, Kenzie might have been mad at her either way. Right. So, so for Bo, she kind of isn't is unsure what, what to do. And I think initially when I watched that, and Bo just finally she says, "Fine, you know, I unclaim you." Um, to me, it sounded a little cold of Bo to just say, "Okay, I'll just give you up." But it, again, it's what can Bo do? And I think Bo is just saying it at that moment to give Kenzie what she wants. But then right after that, she says, "Kenzie, we're not done." You know, it's not like she's giving up on Kenzie. So, but Kenzie is so has so much grief and guilt and everything. She just doesn't can't listen to her at that point. So let's let's move on to my favorites, the only parts of the episode that I liked, Lauren. So I did a weird thing that I don't usually do. Well, it's not weird, but I did a thing last week that I don't usually do. I actually watched the promo because I was seeing so many people talking about the promo on Twitter. 
I was like, I've heard all of the promo already. I might as well just watch it. <laughs> and a lot of people were really harshing on Bo for what she says to Lauren about I chose you and you broke my heart. We'll start with Annie. So what what was <laughs> your reaction to to that scene, Annie? Well, it's good that I always have your wisdom in my head, Stephanie, because you know, Bo needs to be up front. You know, she says, I chose you, but you broke my heart. And it's like, God, why is it always they get interrupted? You know, and they still haven't talked about Karen or any of this stuff. But, you know, they're talking about the most pressing issue at the moment. So, but I wish Bo would have at least acknowledged, you know, okay, you did this for me, but instead she's still kind of pissed about the Morgan. But, you know, it makes me wonder, is Lauren or Kenzie, are they going to have to be sacrificed or to die for Bo to realize, you know, yet again, how much she, you know, for Bo to go, oh, okay, so... We should have talked more or something. You know, it's not all Bo's fault, but it's frustrating how stubborn she can be. Um, and they both got hurt, and they both have stuff on both sides they need to say, but they always get interrupted because that's television, and it just made me head desk. A lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. So, give me your wisdom, Stephanie, so that I don't explode onto a mess on my screen, because this is a new laptop. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, I guess, for me... That scene felt like a perfect fight slash conversation between two exes because you have each of them sort of pushing each other's buttons the way that only you, you know how to do with people you know really well. And you have each of them kind of rewriting their relationship a little bit in the best light in order to sort of get at the other one. Like, like Bo saying, I chose you and you broke my heart. People were really going after Bo for saying that, but from Bo's perspective, Lauren did break her heart. Lauren went off with Taft. You know, she took, she asked her for the break, and then Lauren went off with Taft, and she didn't really know why. And, and then, you know, she chose to go with the dark, which Bo didn't understand. And Lauren did break her heart. Lauren had reasons, and Bo isn't acknowledging that Lauren has reasons, which isn't fair. But Lauren really did break Bo's heart. But as far as the whole I chose you part, Bo never really communicated that to Lauren, so it's kind of unfair for her to hold that against Lauren. <laughs> I think probably in her mind, Bo did feel like she chose Lauren, but that's not how she communicated it to Lauren. Because, you know, just a few episodes ago in Destiny's Child, she's talking about, it's always going to be hard for me to choose you or Dyson. And now she's saying to Lauren, I chose you. Like, well, that's not fair, Bo. Well, maybe she's referring to, you know, it's time. That, but way back when. But considering what Bo has recently been doing with choosing both Lauren and Dyson, I could see how it would be confusing to Lauren. That's possible, but I don't know if it would feel that way to Lauren, because in that episode, both Bo and Lauren still thought that Dyson couldn't love Bo anymore. So there wasn't really the choice there, Lauren versus Dyson. I think, I mean, this is. Again, sort of my own headcanon type thing going on. But uh, back in 310 Delinquents, which is when the break was initiated, earlier in that episode, we have a scene between Bo and Dyson where Bo very plainly states to Dyson that she's choosing Lauren. And then she's on the little video call with Lauren and she's talking about, you know, going to Egypt together and stuff like this. And then you know, at the end of the episode during the break scene, I think Bo again is talking about, 
you know, I just want you to feel as amazing as I feel when I'm with you and all this sort of thing. And to me, the way I'm reading all this is that Bo is basically fully ready to commit to some sort of deeper relationship with Lauren. I mean, that's the way it's playing out to me in my mind. When Lauren sort of pulls the rug out from under Bo with the, you know, we need to take a break, which of course is perfectly reasonable on Lauren's behalf to do that because stuff has been crazy and, you know, I get it, but I think, you know, seeing it from Bo's perspective, I can see why that would throw Bo off. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And it's not like Bo had made those intentions known earlier uh, to Lauren of how she wanted to commit to her. So going back to Bo and Lauren scene as sort of a couple's fight, you know, we have Bo say, I chose you and you broke my heart, which it has truth in it, but also isn't really fair to Lauren. And then we have Lauren say to her, I stayed with the dark for you. I isolated myself for you. Everything I do is for you, which has some truth to it. I do think that Lauren really cares for Bo. And there's a lot of evidence that she's done so much for Bo and made sacrifices for Bo. As you that- pointed out, being a little too self-sacrificial yeah. at times. But I don't think necessarily everything Lauren has done has been for Bo. Like, you know, going off with Taft from what we saw, that was for her. I don't begrudge her that. I think Lauren needs to do more stuff for herself. But going with Taft, that was for Lauren. You know, what she does to the Morrigan in this episode, yes, it helps Bo, but it also benefits her. So, again, I just, I I thought the actresses, I thought Zoe and Anna did a really good job with this particular scene selling sort of the history between these two characters. And I thought it was interesting that we saw in last episode, Bo essentially telling Dyson, I don't love you anymore. And people wondered, oh, if Lauren had been in this episode, would Bo had told, told Lauren the same thing because of her feelings for Rainer now. And so we get a scene with Bo and Lauren in this episode and she doesn't, there actually seems to be a hint that she still really cares for Lauren. Yeah. And vice versa. So Mm-hmm. There was, I think, a, a little longing there. A little. At least a little bit. At the end, there was yeah. a lot. It broke my heart. <laughs> it's the looks, you know. There's Anna and Zoe are so good at it, because they know their characters so well, so. Okay, it's Sally again. I think I wasn't done. Uh, I think that the moment that Bo and Lauren shared deserves its own voicemail. So, here's some info. I've... I'm one of the people who loves the Docubus relationship, and all season long I've been optimistic and holding out hope that they are each other's true loves and they're going to find their way back to each other eventually. So there have been a couple of times during the season that I've paused for a microsecond to question whether that, you know, is actually true or whether I was deluding myself, but I think that the... uh, the text of the show has been pretty strong outlining how they love each other. And then this episode explicitly, we got to hear from Lauren explicitly that she joined the dark and she's been doing all of this stuff to help Bo and for Bo. What we'll have to figure out or hear more of like what her master plan is. I think Bo is still acting confused. Maybe she has memory loss. Maybe she's still under a spell, but I think we saw the truth in her eyes when she and Lauren were in her bedroom and you know, their eyes really said it all. Um, there wasn't even any dialogue necessary. So 
I think they'll be together again. I think the question is when we need more time. Talking about Lauren and the Morrigan. So Lauren does this thing. Well, she does a couple of things, I guess. (laughs) Well, she does the Morrigan. (laughs) And while doing the Morrigan, she does this other thing. So so when I watched that scene, I was just like, what? She did what? My jaw was on the floor. Yeah, I was kind of like, I can't believe they just did that. And yet, I can totally believe they just did that. Just the whole seduction scene, because, you know, the Morgan's on the phone, she comes in, and then there's Lauren in the little silvery lingerie with a little pink bow. I love that. That's so, like, just a not matching color, but who cares? Because Zoe looks great. Clearly, Crystal helped her pick that out, too. I think it was Crystal's. I think she borrowed it. Maybe, maybe so. And she's saying she wants to join the dark officially and everything. And I'm going, no, don't join the dark, Lauren. Don't tell me your feelings for Ebony are real because Bo pushed you away. You know. You are so gullible, Annie. Even though (laughs) Lauren had just told Bo she was trying to get to the Morrigan for everything for you, Bo. This is how, yes, I know I'm gullible. So I'm watching all of this and I'm going, you've got a plan, Lauren. You've got a plan. But still, my my jaw was on the ground going, I can't believe she's doing this. I can't believe she's doing it. Is she going to get away with it? And, you know, yes, the emotional non- or the emotional gullible side of me is going through that whole (gasps) transition. So, you know- uh, I loved what we learned about Faye once the Morgan turned human. <laughs> because it's like, oh, obviously they must not have like a sense of taste or something. Maybe their tongue doesn't have all the four taste things or something. I don't know. What's implied, not not necessarily about Faye, I don't think, but for the Morgan, is that she does not, you know, she does not sweat. She doesn't get itchy. I think that might be specific to her particular type of fae because she's supposed to be this really like perfect beautiful muse figure interesting because we've seen bow sweat <laughs> you know <laughs> so we know that not we all know fae, what you're talking about we know that not all fae don't sweat that's true so okay yeah but i just thought that was fascinating and to get her period for the first time in her life and i'm like oh man i'd love to be that fae got all that crap <laughs> Well, my actually, my question about the whole period thing is if the Morgan's never gotten her period, how did she have Massimo? It's not like Faye re- reproduce in the same way that humans do. They don't ovulate. We don't know. It was just sort of an interesting line to put in there in the episode where they confirm that Massimo is her son. Right. So... The reaction to what Lauren did to the Morrigan has been really varied. There's been a lot of people who are like, oh my gosh, awesome, how cheeky Lauren basically succubused the Morrigan, essentially, you know. And then there's been other people who felt really uncomfortable by the fact that Lauren used sex in order to turn the Morrigan into a human. And I think that this is a good conversation to have because there is, you know, we we need to talk about sort of these issues of consent, which is a big thing that they don't really talk about on Lost Girl, probably purposefully, because their main character uses sex and sexual desire as sort of a, you know, a weapon more or less against people. This is her, 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 her offensive move is to is to use sexual desire. 
And so they don't really talk about it all that much. But I think it's important to talk about in this situation in particular because I've been seeing people talk about it on Twitter. Somebody actually emailed us uh, a very interesting comment about this. We got an, an email from Dark Rat. Dark Rat says, I have to admit that I'm struggling with it. On the one hand, I viewed it in terms of a person who has a venereal disease having unprotected sex with someone who is not aware of the other person's status. On the other hand, Ebony and many of the other Fae feed on humans without consent and, in fact, often kill her victims. We've seen Ebony do this many times. She has often threatened Bo's life verbally in this episode and physically in other episodes. Lauren has no reason to doubt the threat this time and moves to protect Bo and others from Ebony. And yes, I also like to think she wants to level the fey human playing field. If Lauren had injected the serum into Ebony with a syringe, it's very possible that Ebony would have seriously hurt or even killed Lauren before the serum took effect. Because from what Lauren says, the serum needs about 20 minutes or so to work. So I thought that was a good summation of sort of what people's feelings were. And, you know, let me just start by saying I think what Lauren does is a very morally gray thing. I think even the show admits that it's a morally gray thing. If you look at the colors that they use in that scene, they have the Morgan in a black dress. They have Lauren in a white shirt, a very sort of white and black background for the Morgan's bedroom. But when Lauren is seducing the Morgan and when they're in bed together, it's she's wearing a gray negligee. The, sh the comforter that they have in is gray. So they very much, I think, are playing with this idea of, you know, who is good, who is bad, what is sort of somewhere in between. Yeah, I mean, it's very much a situation of moral relativism. Right. And I guess my my rationalizing of, of this is that, I mean, how many people have we seen Ebony kill just this season? She's been melting people left and right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, it's not like, I, I guess I also have further issue of Lauren's statement to the Morrigan of, you know, either it'll wear off or it might kill you or it might be permanent or whatever she says. And I kind of wonder if she actually doesn't know or if she's just saying that to kind of mess with her head. Because, as I've also mentioned before, I, I have like a whole, I don't know, I, I intent means a lot to me. So it's one of those things, I, I wonder if she was going into it knowing that it might kill her. Which, again, moral relativism and how many people has the Morrigan just, you know, murdered without a second thought. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess I have less of an issue with it largely because all it actually does is make the Morrigan human. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's not... Yes, the Fae would probably view that as some, like, horrifying thing, but it could be a lot worse. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think it is definitely a legitimate question to wonder why Lauren chose this particular delivery method in order to give the Morgan the serum, because I think some of it might be Lauren trying to give the Morgan kind of her just desserts, because as we've seen in It's Better to Burn Out Than Fay Away, she has sexual relationships with the artist she feeds off of. We see in Into the Dark where she's interviewing 
the, I think he's a centaur for a job, she starts trying to seduce him. The Morgan clearly does not have issue using her position of power in an inappropriate way and having sexual relationships with people who do not have power in her world. And we definitely get a sense that the Morgan does not think of Lauren as a person with power in her world. Back in Let the Dark Times Roll, she refers to Lauren as a new toy. She we have sort of echoing of that toy language in this episode where she talks about how humans are so fun to play with. But again, I do think it's a, a legitimate question to wonder why Lauren picked this particular way to give the Morrigan the serum. Right. Yeah, it, it is one of those things that you're kind of like, why of all things would that be what Lauren thinks? Aha, there's my delivery method. So it's definitely, I think, a complicated situation. Whether you feel one way about it or the other, I don't think that there's necessarily a right way to feel because it is a very, it's a sticky situation. Um, mm -hmm. I did see people, somebody describe it as out of character for Lauren. I don't know if I would say that. I feel like they've demonstrated Lauren is willing to use sex in potentially not quite ethical ways in regards to keeping Bo safe and protecting Bo. It kind of calls back to the first season quite a bit. So I didn't feel it was out of character. Maybe it's because I, I admit I'm biased towards a character, so I don't initially see it as the ways that people saw it with consent, the scene and everything. I mean, it's, again, I read all of that stuff late, some of that stuff reaction later. Um, I think what Lauren did was level the playing field in, again, the only way she knew how with her science. Yes, there is that issue of, Definitely an interesting way to apply it. But as you said, Chris, the, she just turned the Morgan human, but what else can she do? You know, this, you know, the Morgan has been a constant threat, but my question is, why do it now? Um, but it's also, I think, for her, not just for Bo, because she's always been a threat to Bo. And, you know, Lauren overhears earlier in the episode how the Morgan is threatening Bo again. And, I think, um, but I think it was for herself as well, just to, you know, because she's under the thumb of the Dark Fae, whether um, she has a dog collar, as she says, on or not, she's still basically an indentured, you know, human, even if we don't see the trappings of all of that with the Dark Fae as much. Um, she's still around some very powerful and lethal creatures, so... I think that was partially behind her reasoning as to why she would take out the most powerful fae around her that she could and turn her human, but I don't know if she knows the effects of how long it'll last, because it's the first time she's done it, maybe. So I don't know if even Lauren knows um, if it will be last for a lifetime or for an hour or kill Ebony or not. Uh, we got a tweet from Townsend Atlas. I totally believe she was pulling her leg about dying from the serum. Mm. I kind of do, too. Yeah. yeah. And Angela says, Ebony has done many bad things, so do the ends justify means, and I believe, yes, Lauren acted in the best way she could for Bo. Yeah, I think, I think the issue that people have isn't so much that Lauren turned the... Morgan human necessarily, but the fact that she used sex in order to do it really seemed to bother some people. But even the sex, it was still consensual sex, even if the Morgan didn't know it was happening. At least that part was consensual. 
Definitely, the Morrigan was a willing participant in the act. I think the writers had Lauren put the serum on herself yeah. very purposefully. Mm-hmm. You know, Morgan had to choose to do that particular action. It was very much the Morrigan even initiated, like, she kisses Lauren first. The the, the Morgan was very much the initiator of this encounter. Right. I, I guess my issue with people taking issue with this is... You know, but the show is about a succubus. Like, this is the main, as you've mentioned, I mean, this is the main thing of the show. So are we, are we judging Lauren by different standards than those by which we judge Bo? And maybe maybe we're not. Maybe those same people take issue with some of the things Bo does. It's possible. They've done better, I think, with Bo sort of separating most of her sexy times with really, really consenting people, either with, like, Lauren or Dyson or other fae who she doesn't have to tingly touch. But she has had some encounters with humans where is, you know, do the hum- are the humans really able to consent because they don't know who she is? They don't know she's a succubus. Poor fast food employee in the first episode of season two, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some- something wicked this fae comes, this very sweet guy who's kind of like, are you, are you, are you, are you sure? And trying to be like, you know, we don't, let me know if I'm taking advantage here, you know, and, and he wasn't unwilling, but he was hesitant. And Bo really was using her succubus abilities in order to get what she needed and to heal. So definitely, I think this issue of sex, people using sex and kind of not the most, I don't know, upstanding of best ways. ways is def- <laughs> yeah. yeah, the most moral of ways is definitely a motif of the show. So, Annie, you kind of touched on this a little bit before, but, you know, we do have this question now of what is Lauren's kind of long game? Because I think the fact that the Morrigan threatened Bo in this episode was what caused her to, de- you know, defay the Morrigan right this, right this episode. But she'd clearly been planning this long before. Well, I think that's where it comes in, where it's for more of her own protection. And she says in that episode, I'll never trust you. The only thing I kept thinking during that scene is, oh crap, if it ever wears off or the Morgan finds a way back to being a fae, it's not just people wanting to hurt Lauren to get to Bo, it's that Lauren herself is really, really going to make the worst of enemies. So um, she'll have that to worry about from all the fae. I guess my thoughts about what her long game might be is perhaps she started originally thinking it could she could help Bo become unaligned from the dark in some way by turning the Morgan into a human. I think definitely there's a bit of trying to dismantle the light-dark system in her actions. That's one of the things she mentions to Bo in Let the Dark Times Roll as to why she's going with the dark was that you know, there's no out for her. Even if Bo claims her, she's still a human in this system where she has no power. Did you have any ideas, Chris, as to what Lauren's ultimate goal might be? I still don't know. Well, we still think that the voice in 404 was Trick, right? Well, you you really do. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> really? I'm I'm willing to go with what Lauren said in 405, that it was the dark, at least for now. But then we have the question of here, Trick was talking to the Morrigan in this episode, too. They had their secret meeting in the dark hives. So what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What's going on? <laughs> I'm, I want to find out next week is, is the thing. 
I do really want to know what happened between 404, between Turn to Stone and Let the Dark Times Roll, though. I feel like we missed something kind of important. And that's my new rune glass. <laughs> I know. What happened? My new rune glass is what the hell happened in between the scene with the Morgan calling Massimo and then Lauren finding out that he's her son because she overhears it. And then the next time you see them, Massimo and Lauren are in the Unamen's former lair. Yeah, there was a big scene missing. So I guess we're supposed to assume that the Morrigan had Massimo attack Lauren, and he took her to the Unamen's lair, but it just really, there needed to be another scene in there. It was just too abrupt of a switch. We just don't know what happened, and it's not good. So I would have liked to have seen the transformation of what the heck Massimo is going to turn to as he eats the origin seed. He's going to become a papaya horse. No, I'm kidding. So, you know, definitely we're going to have follow-up next episode on Massimo. What's the effects of him swallowing the seed besides apparently getting a huge eye? Maybe that's just I temporary. I hate it when that happens. I know. Actually, that effect really reminded me of the eye from It's Better to Burn oh, Out Than yeah. Fade Away. When his eye gets really big when he's looking at all the cameras, that effect, I think, probably was the same one they used in that episode. So Tamsin and Dyson in this episode, very sorely underused. There was no follow-up from the fact that there was at least smoochies, if not sexy times. Yeah. Yeah. And like I I didn't even need a whole piece of dialogue or conversation. I didn't even need that. I I just would have liked a look, a a significant look between the two of them that either signified like, you know, hey, they're getting kind of cozy or that was really uncomfortable. Let's not do that again. But instead, they were just kind of normal. Yeah, business is normal. Maybe they're ignoring the fact that it happened. I mean, the characters. The characters might be doing that. Is what I'm they, to they say. did share a very cute little like clinking of glasses when they were drinking together, but it just seemed like that was really coming from the actors rather than something being in the script. And I wish something had been in the script. But I thought, as as Annie mentioned, that Dyson delivered a really nice eulogy, and I really did like the moment where Tamsin kind of got in Rosette's face when she was being pushy with Bo and saying, you know, hey, we just got back from a funeral. I know. Like, I really liked that Tamsin It's moment. like that Tamsin yeah, being that part was of the family moment. moment. I'm like, I love you, Tamsin. Yeah. Yeah, because she was she wasn't like the closest the closest to Hale, so she wasn't necessarily super duper grieving. But I so I like that she took sort of the role of protector of her friends and was like, "Hey, yeah. lady, back." She off. understands that the mm-hmm. people around her are grieving that she cares about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sorely underused. And then she had that horrible dialogue about the queen bee. I'm sorry, Jamson. <laughs> Pointing to the big bee, not their queen, the queen. <laughs> <laughs> and the queen doesn't mean the queen. <laughs> it means more. You're the one. What the hell? Anyway. <laughs> So we have a couple, you know, of, of season slash theory series themes come up in this episode. We again, Bo talking about family, the importance of family, and especially found family rather than blood family. And then we have, you know, this this idea about blood equaling power again. You know, Bo makes that comment about what is it with my family and blood. And then finally, we have Bo making this statement about finally accepting her destiny, but it felt so anticlimactic. I it was, I was just like, really? That's it? Eh. It left me, left me feeling cold. But yeah, so there's a lot riding on this last episode because they've they've crammed so much into the last of the season. They've got so many 
potential loose ends that they could and should tie up. There are some questions I think that are more important to answer than others, but there's a lot of fairly important loose ends to tie up or at least make clear they're going to tie them up eventually. Right. I I think that's why this episode bothered me less than it bothered you is that we're finally getting to a point where stuff that they've been planting all season is sort of finally coming back into the plot. So I'm, I'm excited to get, but they threw Some in resolution all this new on stuff. shit. <laughs> I know. But they always do. With the second curses and the hand fasting. And the, and the I know. Well, you, you know, it's it's TV shows will always do that. And I'm excited and, and terrified for next week, knowing that they will answer some questions. But I predict another cliffhanger. This episode is running quite long, and so we won't dwell too long on our stray thoughts this week. But I did want to share a voicemail that we got from an anonymous caller. Particularly, I wanted to share it with Annie. Leaves! Leaves! <laughs> I, I would like to point out, everybody, Allie Liebert is aware of the Leaves cry she and is. the proofs. Yes, she is. She, is. I was very she said proud it makes her happy. So let us know what you thought about Origin. Were you less than thrilled about it like I was? Or were you taking it more in stride the way that Chris did? We (laughs) would love to hear your thoughts. There's a lot to talk about in regards to this episode. So you can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at drinksatthedoll.com slash 42. You can send us an email to feedback at drinksatthedoll.com. Or you can call and leave a message on our listener voicemail line at 972 514-7223. I'm so glad you could join us for Drinks of the Doll. My name is Stephanie. Oh, and I'm Annie with the Papaya Horse. Papaya Horse. Excuse me. <laughs> and I'm very extremely sorry for all three of us. And my name is Chris. Thank you for joining us. Cheers. Cheers.